Well, welcome back, everybody, to Live Longer, the podcast, as I continue and bring to a conclusion this second series, The Art of Living, in collaboration with the Homerton Changemakers Programme at Cambridge University and hand in hand with Iona, a digital healthcare company I set up with colleagues to show the right information at the right time for patients to improve outcomes. And I'd like to conclude this series with a really, really important topic. Here we are coming to the end of the pandemic, an incredible horrendous experience for the whole country and the whole world, in fact, over the last number of years. But what's next? As we emerge post-pandemic, there really is an epidemic of chronic disease. And how are we going to deal with this? How is our health service going to cope with the burden of illness that lies before us? So to discuss this important topic, I've invited a wonderful colleague. He is the Professor of Cardiology at University College London. He's the director of the National Institute of Cardiovascular Outcomes, otherwise known as NICOR. He's the chair of a recent government review of the Health Check Programme and a strong interest in wellness and the chief medical advisor for Our Future Health, a very interesting initiative that I'm hoping that he'll tell us a little bit about. So join me in a warm welcome with Professor John Deanfield. John, you're very welcome. Thank you for the opportunity to speak this afternoon, Millie. Well, it's great to have you. And what I'd like to do is start off. Here you are. You're a consultant cardiologist, professor of cardiology, and that's all about, you know, saving lives and you're at the front line of care. So where did this interest in prevention and wellness come from? How did that emerge in your career? Well, um, it's I'm an interesting cardiologist in the sense that I started as an adult cardiologist dealing with the clinical complications that patients get in later life. But they then spent some time at Great Ormond Street looking after children. And it was immediately obvious that the children we were treating as so carefully and well in the first few years of their life were precisely the people who were going to disappear into the system and then emerge later on in life with cardiovascular disease. Mm. And that we were not really dealing with the opportunity of transforming their future by earlier intervention and engaging them to maintain their own future health. Interesting. And that's where my interest in this started, in this idea of lifetime management of future cardiovascular risk. And if you like, the concept of investing in your arteries, just as we might do for our financial futures. Absolutely. And we, we talked about this actually in my most recent podcast with Joe Harrison, where we compared somebody's wellness and how you invest in it to people invest in their financial health. You don't just look at your bank account one day and decide, oh, I'm broke, I'm going bankrupt. It's a gradual process and the same we must think about our health. So it's a good perspective investing in your arteries. I like it, John. Well, you're absolutely right, Millie. And health and wellness are really only just one letter difference, if you like. We've learned in the last few years, there is a tremendous opportunity to alter the trajectories to future disease by understanding how we can intervene early and maintain lifestyle and healthy behavior and really alter the risk of future problems. So this is now really a once in a lifetime opportunity to engage with the public as we emerge from COVID because as we've seen in COVID, both before and during and after, the cardiometabolic disease, hypertension, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes and the like, transformed the outlook for patients with COVID, but also remained the biggest cause of population illness and premature death as we emerge from COVID. This is the real opportunity to transform the future and help the healthcare system 
Yes, and a challenge as well, because you mentioned this is the, the meat of, you know, patients who did worse had cardiovascular um, adverse outcomes going into COVID. And also patients got cardiovascular morbidities through COVID and indeed long COVID with cardio inflammation. But what about all those patients who've been waiting for elective cardiac surgery and patients, for example, who are diabetics? I mean, it's one thing to deal with COVID and all that it um, entails in terms of evolving the cardiovascular system and the risks of COVID with the cardiovascular outcomes. But what about the forgotten group of the population who have diseases and illness that need to be dealt with now and, and the backlog? How are we going to manage all that? Well, that's a huge politically charged question, Millie. And quite clearly, as we emerge from COVID with all the resources that have been diverted to deal with the pandemic, we're going to have a huge catch-up operation to deal with across the whole of medicine. And cardiovascular disease is no exception. So quite clearly, we're going to have to tackle that backlog. But the way to support the healthcare system, perhaps, is, is to use it as late as possible. And the only way to do that is to invest much earlier on in health uh, by altering people's risk profiles much earlier and altering the development of their disease that's going to cause so many problems in later life. Mm. So using it as late as possible. So could you give me a real life example of a, a sort of a lifetime risk calculator in cardiovascular disease um, to kind of bring this to life for my listeners? Yeah, so the first thing that we've learned is that the disease that we eventually get so much trouble from in later life, which is caused by high blood pressure, arterial disease from cholesterol that ends up in heart attacks and strokes, doesn't start off in our 50s and 60s and starts really early on from the first decade of life. Now, it progresses silently over decades and eventually causes clinical problems, usually when we're 50 or 60 years and over. And that gap in between is the opportunity to understand how we can actually alter that trajectory to future diseases. And just as we were talking about earlier, it's the uh, same conversation about investment, that small changes early in lowering risk factors that we can achieve by healthier lifestyles very often, if they're sustained for a long period of time, produce tremendously uh, uh, greater benefits in later life. So this idea that we might just give intensive treatment to people who've been allowed to develop their disease silently before they had the clinical problem is not the right way to approach uh, population health. And that doing something early, even if it's just simply by lifestyle change and sometimes adding medications where necessary, if we do it in a form that alters their future, we can really make a difference for later health. So use the analogy about saving. None of us would... Uh, want to start to save for our retirement when we were 64 and think we would be help, uh, financially well off later on, we would do it earlier. It's just the same for heart disease. So it's fine if you know who's at risk. This is what I wanted to get at. How do we identify those at risk? And you're probably going to come to this now. This is the essence of the calculator. So we can have a tool that when you're, you know, a child, your parents can help identify if you're going to be at risk in your 50s of cardiovascular disease. So uh, it's a really key question. Uh, traditionally, the risk calculators that doctors have used to manage patients have really focused on a short period of risk over 10 years, because this is what mattered to people with clinical disease. 
and giving them drugs like statins. But we now realize that we should be looking at lifetime risk uh, profiles. And we can do that now with novel calculators that are not just extended over the lifetime of patients, but also begin to use what we call the causal structure for their disease and understand what it is that actually is driving disease, cholesterol, blood pressure, obesity, and the like, to make very personal predictions about an individual's future and help them understand the opportunities that they have to alter their personal uh, wellness and their personal future by managing those risk factors early on. So that's the po- the point is that it's a personalized, predictive approach mm. that allows people to understand what they can do to prevent future disease and makes it very much more attractive rather than just general information about uh, weight and, and smoking and the like. I see. So, so from a practical perspective, here am I, I've got two children, my youngest is 15 She's had a chronic illness. In fact, she's been an oncology patient most of her life. So can I use your calculator now to predict her risk and start intervening and doing things to ensure that she has her best outcome? I mean, give us some practical tips, John, on how we as parents, not just as as a medical parent, but as a, a regular parent could move forward with this tool to create a better future. Well, some uh, some of the recommendations are well known and obvious. Your, your daughter and all of us should not smoke. We should maintain a healthy weight. We should exercise more and have a good diet. But those are simple generic uh, recommendations that everyone should adhere to. But what will really be transformative is to be able to look at the way in which the individual risk factors are developing in us, our blood pressure, for example, our weight trajectories, and really understand what's happening to our own bodies and how our risk is evolving over time. And that will really help us shape the way in which we can engage with the public and make the messaging to them really important for their own personal health and help them. So this is about changing behavior in a way that nudges people, do the right thing because it's relevant to the way in which their arterial disease is silently developing. I see. So you're really talking about not just a cross-sectional one-time deal. This is a longitudinal. This is this is the essence of what you say is a new deal with the public where you have to buy in, you have to have your own motivation. And we also have to have the tooling, of course, to be able to measure our status, if you like to call it, um, on a longitudinal basis rather than just as a one-time deal. I think that's absolutely correct. And you know, a, a, a health check in the way that we used to have that aimed really just to pick out people in the population who may have had a disease they didn't know about was uh, of some importance. But the real prize is, as you've said, to engage with people in a longitudinal way to watch the evolution of their risk factors over time and help them overcome them is an extraordinarily powerful way to try to uh, prevent future illness and cardiovascular disease. So the health check review that we carried out, the government health check review, really changed the agenda and recommendations towards having a digital-based system that allowed the public to upload their data onto it, risk calculations to be done based on the change in risk factors over time, communicating actionable information back to the public and nudging and rewarding them for changing their lifestyle for the better and really changing that longitudinal engagement and starting at an earlier age than traditionally we might have done in medical practice. 
from the age of 30 in our recommendations. Interesting. And this is the essence of patient empowerment that Joe Harrison last week was talking about, really, isn't it? You're empowering, you're giving the patients the tools. You're assuming that we can motivate, you know, and galvanize everybody in this aftermath of COVID because that's the only way, you know, looking forward 50 years from now that we'll be able to deal with the the mess that we've been left with. So you're absolutely right. Uh, the message is exactly the same. It's placing the person at the center and empowering them to manage their own health better in a very innovative way. And this is where digital health can really play a part, as it does allow us to engage with people in a totally different way, in the way that we learned in the pandemic and the opportunities uh, that have come out of the pandemic. Yeah, and I think it's worth mentioning, I mean, digital solutions by themselves, they won't change the health of the nation. It's when you have digitally enabled pathways of care that are embedded, and particularly when the clinicians themselves are at the forefront of innovating in collaboration with patients and the managers and all the stakeholders that we're really going to get the best outcome rather than just, you know, another cool app. That's not going to solve the, you know, the nation's problem. We need to think about our traditional pathways of care and invest time and thought in innovative, new, digitally enabled pathways of care where patients are more empowered. You're absolutely right, because people have thought of digital um, technology as almost a threat to democratizing healthcare. But in fact, it provides, as you just said, a really enormous opportunity. It makes it possible for people to engage with their own health during their normal daily lives in a much easier way. It enables them to follow the change in their weight, their blood pressure and the like, and upload information into the system and see how it transforms the predictions of their future. And so it, it really changes the narrative and makes it much more personal. And at the same time, offers people the opportunity not just to understand their risk, but also to understand the benefit that they're getting from the way in which they change their lifestyles or medications that they take if it's necessary. So this is an extraordinary opportunity to change the way in which we pass the the, the narrative from the doctor dealing with the disease later on, right back to power, empower the citizen to prevent their uh, future disease and manage their own health better. Yes, and I think a key part, you hit the nail on the head there, John, because you mentioned, you know, patients will be testing, they're more interested in their health, they're trying to do everything they can, but there's obviously limitations. And the worst thing you can do is empower somebody and say, right, go off and buy this blood test and you're going to be better. No, it's the information that's given alongside and the inference of those blood tests, which is why clinician-patient engagement is really at the heart of this. And just recently, I was very fortunate to um, be talking to Alina Trapattoni, who wrote an amazing article for Langebusen on the boom in home self-testing. And this is like a real feature now in people's lives. People are buying tests off the internet and it's incredibly powerful, but we also need to make sure that they know and they can understand the meaning of the results in order to harness and leverage the health benefits that go with it. And I'll probably put a link to this in, in the in the chat, actually, because it's so important. But, you know, health testing by itself, digital solutions by themselves without thought and planning and pathway development behind it is, is really not going to be helpful. And I guess that's what brings us to you know, the other project you're involved in, because this is the essence of our future health, isn't it? This is what we're really coming to now and building up in the climax of this interview is, is this exciting government project, which embodies 
digitally clever pathways, self-testing and giving information to patients based on results to improve the health of the nation? So you're absolutely right that um, it is all about providing the public with understandable information and then giving them the opportunity to see how they can manage it. So communicating data in the way that I know you've been involved with, Millie, in terms of Iona and producing an engagement between the citizen and healthcare service is absolutely crucial. But then we have created a, a unique prospective cohort, a group of people, 5 million people in the population who are going to enter into, if you like, a wellness ecosystem whereby we will follow them up, we'll provide information to them in an actionable way and longitudinal information and give them access to the latest technology, the latest investigations and access to participate in trials and the like for the latest medical treatments to improve their health on the basis of the fact that we will have personalized uh, their own health problems and the best way for them to benefit themselves in the future. So this is in a unique population. It's by far the biggest type of study in the world like this. It will take 5 billion people and follow them up over time to see how we can not only uh, communicate health messages to them, but intervene with innovations to help them manage their health better in the future. So it's very exciting to be part of this project. Wow, amazing. And you're the chief medical advisor, are you, John? Yes, I am. And a whole team of people are involved in this. A very large group of people involved in recruiting people, managing uh, the whole process that are important, the rigorous processes around collecting information, about ensuring the security of the data, and then following them up. And then now, excitingly, uh, recruiting them into a system whereby they will have the latest medical advances uh, available to them to manage their health better. So this is uh, a unique project in the population and will be, uh, I believe, astonishingly valuable going forward. And has it started already? Or is this just, you know, another great idea that the government has? Uh, is this actually getting off the ground? No, it's, it's started already. And the whole te teams of, of, of extraordinarily capable people are now involved in developing this. But of course, everything has been a bit delayed by COVID. So I think you will see this program ramping up in the next year or two and become much more visible. And so people can self-select to go in or is this targeted recruitment? Because people listening might think, gosh, I want to be part of that. I want to know if I'm at risk of cancer or heart disease and, and I want to do something about it. So the recruitment will be in a number of different ways. We'll be recruiting people through their primary care system, through um, the health service in different ways. We'll be recruiting people from hospitals and different clinics uh, with different disease uh, problems. And we'll be recruiting well people through very large organizations like the Blood Transfer Service, for example. And so there will be multiple ways in which citizens can access uh, this program. And I think there will be, a, hopefully, a lot of enthusiasm to participate. Mm. And just to be clear, this is not like necessarily a research study where you submit your details, but you only get the collated results of the trial rather than individual. So this is the individual will have their blood taken and they will get a risk profile. And then presumably the organisers will actually give them information tailored to anything that shows up on their profile. So they will have the be empowered to actually take action based on the results. Is this what differentiates it from a sort of a trial? 
it isn't a trial. You're absolutely right, Millie. It's a system whereby people will be entered into a program and participate in a program, but they will get some information, but they will also have access to different trials that are going to go on in the population going forward and be able to participate in innovations in a way that hasn't been possible in the past. So it is not like being in a, a trial, but it will be conducted to the highest scientific standards mm. to ensure that the results are valuable and that the data that, pe- that is collected is most carefully managed. Well, this is a very, very positive and hopeful message, John. Thank you so much. And I think that's a really good place to finish and to summarise that what we're trying to tackle today in this discussion is what happens next? How are we going to improve the health of our nation? Because clearly the health service is bursting at its seams. So one way is that we all take ownership of our health together with being empowered by those that provide health and also digital solutions to help the clinicians help the patients and also for us all to help ourselves. So I think this is a combined task force approach where we need government, health services, patients, and we all buy into this new deal together. So thank you so much, John, for joining us. I think it's been really insightful chatting to you today. It's a great pleasure, Millian. Thank you for the opportunity. And thank you to my listeners for tuning in today. And I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I have. And do listen back to Professor Joe Harrison, his thoughts on digital solutions and Nicola Daly, a nurse at Milton Keynes University Hospital on how deploying a digital pathway of care has transformed her life and that of the patients. And we've also done a really good series on COVID and we'll be releasing imminently the interview with Dr. Tamsin Lewis, um, high-profile athlete who was struck down with long COVID where she courageously and very bravely gives a very candid view on her experience of long COVID and it epitomises some of the issues we talked about today with Professor Deanfield. So if you'd like to leave any feedback, please feel free to do so either on Apple um, Review or indeed hello at livelongerthepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.